You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Uh, We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. We are working our way through the book of Ezekiel, which is a fascinating book named after the prophet who God gave messages to. And we've made it to Ezekiel chapter 18. I was trying to work my way through this book in kind of big chunks. It's a long book, and I wanted to kind of keep us moving. But last week, there was so much in chapter 17, we just took one chapter, and the same for this week. There's so much in chapter 18, and there's such importance here that we need to just slow down and handle chapter 18, and then maybe we'll speed up again. We're only going to uh, cover one chapter tonight. We're going to talk about our accountability to God, our accountability uh, to God. And again, we'll be in Ezekiel chapter 18. Now... Uh, to just remind you of kind of the structure of this book, I want you to take note in your notes the general outline, the broad outline of this book. The first part is uh, the story of how God called Ezekiel into the prophetic ministry. Ezekiel was a priest who was taken captive by the Babylonians and uh, removed from his homeland, taken back to captivity or exile in the land of Babylon. So he was embedded in Babylon with other Jews who were taken captive. And when he was 30 years of age, God called him to be a prophet and to speak specific messages to the people, the Jews who were there uh, in uh, Babylon. So that's the prophet's call. The second part of the book is, uh, is really focused on a series of messages for Jerusalem and Judah, for the Jewish people. And that's where we find ourselves uh, tonight. We're talking about these messages uh, to Jerusalem and Judah. And then in the third part of the outline, there are some messages for other nations, uh, not just the Jews. And then in part four, there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. In part two, a lot of the messages center on the fact that disaster for Jerusalem is coming, ultimate disaster is coming. Part four is the aftermath of the disaster when uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and destroys the walls, destroys the temple, burns the city down. And there are some messages after that catastrophic event. And then part five is a vision of restoration. God uh, ends on some notes of hope. And it's it's, uh, fascinating to see that. Here's a summary. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He was my Greek professor, and he does a great job summarizing books. He wrote... From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So God communicates through Ezekiel to his people how he is working in all of this, even the judgment and the disaster, to bring about his purposes and ultimately so that his people and other nations as well would know that he is the one true God. Now, 
chapter 18 is an interesting chapter because it's sandwiched between chapters 17 and 19. And chapter 17 and 19 are big picture chapters where God's dealing with nations. If you remember the last time we were together, we talked about two eagles and a vine. And we talked about the vine representing the, the Jewish people. We talked about one eagle representing Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The other eagle representing uh, Hophra, the, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And we talked about how God was at work uh, you know, overseeing the nations and, and how uh, the Jews, instead of submitting to the authority of the Babylonians, kind of bent towards Egypt, hoping they could help deliver them instead of Bending towards God, they bent towards Egypt, and they suffered the consequences of that. And so chapter 17 is about nations. Chapter 19 is about leaders, uh, the princes of uh, the Jews. But in chapter 18, it's almost like God pauses things for a moment to kind of step aside and to say, I know I've been talking about nations. I know I've been, I've been talking about big picture things. But I want to I make some statements about how I deal with individuals. How I deal with, with souls. So you don't miss uh, that each individual soul is accountable uh, to God. It, it's easy to think, well, he's just talking about you know, nations here and the, the world scene, the, the global order. Uh, but we also need to understand that God deals with each individual soul. And he, he, he feels that that's so important. He takes an entire chapter, kind of a... Kind of a a parenthesis before he continues on uh, to, to help us to understand that. And so what I want to do is I want to look at chapter 18 and walk you quickly through three case studies. God uh, shares these, these um, um, really hypothetical situations to get his point across. And, and then there are five takeaways, five things that we need to learn from those three case studies. And again, these all deal with our accountability to God, which you might notice is the message or the title of the message tonight, Our Accountability to God. So let's jump into chapter 18. Again, this is a parenthetical thought before he goes on um, with the big picture thoughts in chapter 19. And let's look at the three case studies. The first case study is that of a righteous father. A righteous father. Look what it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by or you, by you in Israel. So it seems like Ezekiel maybe, maybe the people he's speaking to, the, the leaders, in, uh, leaders among the Jews who were in captivity in Babylonian exile, they were using this proverb, and it's an interesting proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, what the fathers have done is uh, showing up um, in... Uh, is con what the fathers have done is consequential for the children, is, is what they're saying there. Uh, the, the children are directly experiencing the effects of the fathers. It, it'd be like me saying, um, I ate a lemon and my son puckered up. Right? That's kind of what the proverb is there. And he says there, um, don't use this proverb anymore. Why? Look in verse 4. Behold, the Lord says, all souls are mine 
The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So he's saying there, this proverb confuses things because it seems like uh, people are saying, well, the reason I'm experiencing God's judgment is because of what my Father has done. And they are, in, in a sense... Um, releasing themselves from personal responsibility for the judgment of God. They're blaming it on their fathers. And, and, and to, make, um, to make the point, the Lord shares a case study. Look, look what it says there in verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel... Does not, defile him, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity. Does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge. Commits no robbery. Gives his bread to the hungry. Covers the naked with the garment. Does not lend an interest or take any profit. Withholds his hand from injustice. Executes true justice between man and man. Walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, if you look at that list of things, you see uh, different aspects of the law of God. Um, the law of God can really be summarized under three headings. There's the moral law of God, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And you're aware of the Ten Commandments. There is the, the uh, civil law of God, uh, which determines how the Jews were to interact with each other as a nation. It was to cause them to be a civil society. And you see parts of that in this list of righteous things. And there's the, the ceremonial uh, or purity laws. And you see some of those in this list as well. So when you hold this list up, it's, it's looking at different aspects of the law that God had given his people to live by. And a righteous man is described as one who keeps the law, who is doing what the law says, obeying the law of God, the, the moral law, the, the civil law, the, 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 the ceremonial law or the cultic law. He's, he is keeping all of these laws. And it says there, there's a summary statement in verse 9. He is righteous, done the right thing. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. So here's a man who's obeying God. I believe this is a man of faith who is carrying out the law with faith in God's promises regarding the law. And he is demonstrating he's a person of faith by doing the right thing, by, by keeping the laws. And he says there, He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. That's a righteous father. That is, uh, that is case study number one. Now look at case study number two, a wicked son. If he, the righteous father, the righteous man, fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does, who does uh, any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. So the son is involved in wickedness, even though the father was not involved in that same wickedness. It says, who even, the son who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest, takes profit, shall he then live? In other words, he's a real scoundrel, all right? This is the son of the righteous father, and he is, uh, he is not obeying God. He is a man of wickedness who rejects the law of God. It says there, he shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him 
self. Now, there's some discussion here when it says, He shall not live, he shall surely die. Is this talking about physical death as an act of God's judgment? Or is it talking about eternal spiritual death as an act of God's judgment? And the answer is probably yes. There are both aspects here. God would sometimes send his judgment on his people and destroy his people. And and they would actually uh, lose their physical lives. But this also, I believe, in a greater way speaks of eternal separation from God. Eternal death that comes because you have rejected God and his ways. And so this is a wicked son. But then there's an interesting turn here. There's a... A third case study, there's a righteous son. So look what it says in verse 14. Now suppose this man, the wicked son, fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. So this is the, the son, the righteous son of the, of the wicked son of the righteous father. Everybody got that? So this is the grandson of the first man that's mentioned, of the, of the righteous man. So there, he shall surely live. The, the, the idea he shall surely live means he will not undergo my judgment, is, is what he's um, saying there. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what is good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And so there are these three case studies to illustrate that the spiritual condition of your family does not determine how God interacts with you. The the spiritual condition of your family does not determine how God reacts with you. You are accountable for how, or you're accountable for your uh, response to God, regardless of whether your family is righteous or unrighteous. So those are the three case studies to illustrate that. So let me give you some some takeaways to really help explain this. Hopefully this will come together for you. Five takeaways because the remainder of the chapter explains what these case studies are all about and hopefully we'll understand this passage and our accountability to God even more. Takeaway number one, and this is to kind of give you a foundational statement before we get into some of the the nitty-gritty. God takes no delight in judging the wicked. God takes no delight in judging the wicked. There's a lot about judgment in this chapter, but we need to understand the character of God. Look what it says in verse 23. Fast forward down to verse 23. The Lord says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So God here is saying, even though I'm going to send my judgment against those who reject me, I don't enjoy that. I take no pleasure in that. I'll always do the right thing because I'm holy and I must punish sin, but I take no pleasure in punishing the wicked. I, I, I take no pleasure in pouring out judgment. He says the same thing in verse 32. Look what he says in verse 32. Last verse of the chapter. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. 
God takes no delight in judging the wicked. So as we enter into God's interaction with individuals in the midst of families, we need to be clear about the character of God. As I was studying this, it reminded me of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is dealing with skeptics. And the skeptics were saying, you know, you, uh, you Christians keep talking about the return of Jesus. And he hasn't come back yet. It's been a while. It's been decades. He hasn't returned. And, and they were scoffing at those who were talking about the, the return of Christ. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes... The reason God has not come back, the reason Jesus has not come back yet, is not because he doesn't keep his promises. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to come back. But the, the reason that God seems slow to return from your perspective is because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, he's saying there that, that the reason God delays in in Jesus returning to set everything right is because the Lord wants more and more people to repent and get right with Him. God wants to see more and more people saved. Why? Because He loves us, right? And so as we study Ezekiel 18, let's be clear on the character of God. He will judge. He's holy. He will pour out His wrath upon sin. But He, he takes no delight in judging the wicked. So that's kind of the first Foundational thought. Now here's the second takeaway back in Ezekiel 18. An individual, an individual is accountable before God. An individual is accountable before God. Now look back in Ezekiel 18, verse 19. So he shared the three case studies. Righteous father, wicked son, and then the wicked son has a righteous son. Okay, Look what it says in verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? That's what that, that uh, proverb at the beginning uh, communicated. Why should you say, uh, not, uh, why should not the son suffer the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So again, he's, he's delineating here. I know these three case studies were all part of the same family tree, but God deals with them differently based upon how they responded to him. So an individual is accountable before God. That means, and this is very, very important, because I think a lot of people kind of in the back of their minds believe this. There is no salvation and there is no judgment by proxy. I'll say it again. There's no salvation and there's no judgment by proxy. In other words, we're not saved because of decisions that our um, ancestors have made. If you have a a godly grandmother or a godly father, that's wonderful, but that doesn't get you into heaven. In fact, you may have heard the, the phrase before that, you know, your grandma can save you a seat in church, but she can't save you a seat in heaven. Right? You can't, you can't do that. 
And, and I think, particularly in the Bible Belt, this is an issue. I think particularly in the Bible Belt, people think, well, you know what? You know, I, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm a good old guy or a good old gal. And, and uh, I know I'm not real serious about the Lord, but I come from a Christian family. I have a, I have a Christian heritage, a, a Christian legacy. So that must mean I'm a Christian, right? And, and what, what someone is doing in a very subtle way when they think that is they're saying... You know what? By proxy, I'm right with God because my grandma and my mom sure love Jesus. And what Ezekiel is saying here, what God's saying through Ezekiel is this. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. You are accountable about, about how you respond to God's work in your life and God's grace in your life and God's love for you. Uh, there's no salvation by proxy and, and there's no judgment by proxy. You may have wickedness in your past and God will not punish you for their wickedness you can be saved and have a relationship with God even though your your ancestors did not there's no salvation there is no judgment by proxy now this is great news for those who come from a legacy of ungodliness right if you've come from a legacy of ungodliness you don't have to Follow in the footsteps of those that have come before you. You, as an individual soul, an individual soul can respond to God and experience His life, experience His grace, experience His salvation. This is great news for those who come from a legacy of ungodliness. Now, this is not to say, and this is important, this is not to say that the children of the ungodly don't face consequences, because they certainly do. If if, um, if, if you have ungodliness in your heritage, you may be experiencing some of the consequences or implications of that in your life today. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a, a, real, a, a real thing. And so you may experience the consequences of, of their ungodly choices, but you don't have to live separated from God maybe the way that they did. You can have a relationship with God. Uh, God. So this is not to say that the children of the ungodly don't face uh, consequences or hardships because of, of ungodliness in their family. And this also does not mean that there, there are not cycles of generational sin. I believe, and I've seen this just by observation, that, that families can have generational sin uh, that passes down to, their, to the descendants, right? To the kids and to the grandkids. And you can see in a family over generations the same sin showing up and the same sin wreaking havoc in a family's life. So that can happen. Ezekiel's not saying that can't happen. But here's the good news. Because God deals with individuals, you can turn to Him, receive His grace and his transforming power, and you can break free from those cycles of generational sin. That's good news, isn't it? No one has to stay in those cycles of ungodliness. Because of God's power and grace, they can chart a new course and set a new trajectory for their family. I've seen it happen many, many times. I've seen someone step out of the line of ungodliness and generational sin, get their heart set upon the Lord and, and take their family in a brand new direction. So this does not mean that, that children don't, 
don't suffer consequences because of their parents' or grandparents' decisions. And this is sobering for us as parents and grandparents, right? If, if, we, if we don't uh, live for the Lord, our, our children and grandchildren can, can suffer for that. Um, and so that, that can still happen. And, and there, are, there, there is such a thing as generational sin, but an individual, an individual, an individual soul can turn to God and be transformed even in the midst of that. So this is great news for those who come from a legacy of ungodliness. And this is sobering news for those who come from a legacy of godliness. Sobering news. Because again, no matter how godly your grandparents were, or your parents were, or your aunt and uncle were, no matter how godly they were, you have to make your individual decision to follow Christ. I was, had a, a quick word with, with uh, Casey, our, our children's director, um, right before church. And, and, and you know, one of her roles, she talks to children who are asking spiritual questions and want to make professions of faith and, and want to be saved and baptized and does a tremendous job with that. And the reason that we, we take special efforts to talk to children as individuals is because we want them to understand that this is your decision. That, that mom and dad can't decide that it's time for you to be saved. Right? Grandma and grandpa can't decide it's time for you to be saved. You've got to come to a place individually where you say, I need a Savior, and I feel God working in my life, and I want to follow Jesus. It's got to be an individual decision, and, and we want to make that happen from our children all the way up to everybody that we encounter. So an individual is, is accountable before God. Kind of one more thing this means for folks, and this is important because you've probably seen this um, this um, victimization mindset. This means that that when it comes to our relationship with God, we're not to shift blame. We're to take individual responsibility for our lives. When we stand before God one day, and everyone will, we're not going to say, well... Well, the reason I never gave you much attention is because of that person over there. I didn't mean to point at you, Jeff, but the, you know the the reason the re, hey God the reason I never turned to Jesus is because you know my uh, my my grandpa was a bad man. That's not how it's going to work. That's not how it's going to work. When you stand before God, it's going to be what have you individually done with? Christ. There's no, going to be no shifting of blame. You've got to take responsibility. Which, by the way, remember the Garden of Eden? Immediately blame shifting, right? The snake came into the garden. He tempted Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit God told them not to eat. And the uh, Lord says, Adam, what have you done? He said, this woman. Right? The woman. She you led me astray. And Eve, what about you? It was the serpent. Blame shifting. We've each got to make an individual decision as to whether or not we will follow the Lord and enter into a relationship with Him. Here's the third takeaway. And this, is, this, is, this is critical. It, it's not necessarily how you start. It's how you finish. It's not necessarily how you start. It's how you finish. Brother Gary asked me about this a few moments ago, if I was going to address this. Look what it says in verse 21. 
If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So that means there's hope for a wicked person. It's not too late if you've got a heart that beats and lungs that breathe. It's not too late for you to turn to God and do the right thing, right? To experience his transforming grace and begin to live for him. That's what he's talking about here. It's not too late. And that's great news. No matter who we talk to, no matter who we come across, if their hearts are beating, their lungs are breathing, no matter how deep a whole sin has dug for them or they have dug for themselves, they can be rightly related to God because God loves them. Amen? And so uh, it's not how you start. If You say, oh, boy, I've, I've gone too far. No. There's grace and forgiveness available, and God will change the way that you live your life. Uh, if you have a shameful past, you can find forgiveness and restoration when you turn to God. And that's really, really good news. That's why we call it the gospel. It's, it's really good news. But look at the next verse. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So this implies forgiveness. God no longer holds his uh, sins against him. And then he says, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed. For them he shall die. So the tables are turned now. Now you have a person that is doing some righteous things, but somewhere down the line, they step away from that and begin to go the wrong direction. And that's their spiritual status when they die. Or they experience God's judgment because of their decisions to turn from the Lord. What is this talking about? This is talking about the reality that you and I should not rely on past or present moral victories. In other words, it's one thing to say that you know the Lord. It's one thing to profess that you have a relationship with God. It's another thing to be truly saved, to be truly related to Him. And the question becomes, well, how do we know if a person is truly saved? How do we know if a person is truly, rightly related to God? Well, the answer is not, well, we look at their first five years after their profession of faith, and if they're doing good, they're truly a Christian, right? No. What we do is we look, is there true fruit in their life that continues on? Is there real fruit produced in their life because of their relationship with God. So I believe, and this is we're looking back at this text through the lenses of the New Testament, okay? And we'll get some more on that in a moment. But I believe this speaks of people who, who say the right thing and try to do some moral religious things in their own strength and achieve some external righteousness, but they've not truly been saved, and it shows up in their life eventually. And they turn away from God. So I don't believe this is a person that's truly righteous that loses their salvation. This is a person who, who claims to be righteous and is putting on a show 
but eventually it shows up that they're not truly related, rightly related to God, and, and it shows up in their wicked fruit, their wicked behavior. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Um, can I give you an illustration of this? Um, I've had people ask me before. You know, somebody that, that makes a, a dramatic profession of faith, you know, they've, they've, they've gone through some tough stuff, and, and uh, they turn to the Lord, and they say, I need Jesus, and they make a dramatic decision for Christ. I've had people ask me, well, do you think that was real? Do you think that was real? Well, first of all, none of us can see the human heart, Amen. So we've got to be very careful about pronouncing whether someone's profession was real or not real or, or whatnot. But here's what we can say. We can say, we'll see. We'll see. Because someone's profession of faith is real, it will eventually show up in righteous fruit. That, that's what the Bible says. And I, I learned this from Adrian Rogers years ago, and it really helped me uh, with people that struggle with assurance of salvation. Um, you know, when I was growing up in church, if you went to the pastor and said, or the youth minister, whoever, and you said, I don't know if I'm truly saved. Like, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, truly converted. What, what the church leader would usually do is say, well, tell me, about, tell me about, you know, when you met Christ. And you'd go back and say, well, I was nine, and I talked to my pastor, and I prayed this prayer, and, or I was at youth camp, or I was at VBS, and I prayed this prayer, and usually someone would say, well, if you, listen, if you, if you prayed that prayer, you're saved. You're, if you prayed that prayer, you're in. You're good. Don't worry about it, right? Adrian Rogers said, and it really changed my paradigm, he said, if you want to know if a person is alive, you don't look at their birth certificate. You look at their vital signs, right? Is their heart beating? Are their lungs breathing? Is there, are there signs of life? And if you come to me and say, Pastor Wayne, I'm struggling with my assurance of salvation. I'm not going to say, I want to hear your story about when you said you met Christ. But, but it's not about your birth certificate. If that was real, listen, there are going to be vital signs. There's going to be fruit. There are going to be signs of life. And I think that this is speaking of people who, who said, hey, I'm right with God. I'm righteous, I'm doing the right thing, but they were not truly transformed. They were not truly born again. They were not truly saved by faith. And it showed up when they turned from the Lord and turned to wicked behavior. So let me just say it again as clearly as I can uh, in, in, in terms of eternal security. If someone is truly saved, they cannot lose their salvation. If someone is truly saved by faith in Christ, they are secure, they are in the hand of God. Nothing and no one can snatch them from the hand of God. So if a person who professes faith in Christ and even tries to live it out for you know four, five, six, seven, eight years, but they turn from God and turn their back on the Lord and go down very, very wicked paths, it, it's not that they were saved and then lost their salvation. It's that they were never saved in the first place. I believe that's what the Bible uh, teaches. And so, back to our five takeaways. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. See, see when we stand before God one day, it's going to be about whether we're truly born again or not, right? If we truly know Him or not. And at that mo moment, it's going to say, well, you know, God, I know, I, I know I've ignored Jesus for 35 years, but back in youth camp, I had an emotional night. 
Now, how it works. If you've truly met Jesus, it's going to show up by fruit being born through your life. That's just how it works. So, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Starting's important, starting's important, but people that truly know Christ, it will show up in their life. Uh, next takeaway, very quickly. Find, ooh, ooh, we run out of time. Find consolation in God's perfect justice. Look in verse 25. You say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is, not, is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns uh, from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of the Lord says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So the Lord is basically saying, Hey, listen, I will always act in perfect justice. I'll always do the right thing when I deal with individual souls. I'll always do the right thing. So we can find consolation that God will handle this all perfectly. Which leads to the fifth and last takeaway. How should we deal with a passage like Ezekiel 18? It should should be an encouragement for people that read it or hear it to make sure they are right with God. To make sure they are right with God. Look in verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, a house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent, turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. The Lord is saying, I deal with individuals, so make sure you are right with me. And he mentions there this this repenting of transgressions, turning from your sin, and turning to him. So I believe this speaks of repentance and faith. You turn from your sin, you turn to the Lord, you trust him, you trust his ways, you trust his word, you trust his salvation. And it says there that that part of this happening in verse uh, 31 is... You make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So by your decision to turn to God, you are given by the Lord a new heart, a new spirit. He changes you from the inside out. What is being described here in this section is the new covenant. Now the old covenant is is summarized by, hey, keep the law of God. Israel blew it. All right? And and, And look at me real quick. So have we. Look at the Ten Commandments. Anyone here perfectly kept the Ten Commandments? None of us, right? None of us. We've all sinned against God. And so Old Covenant does not grant us salvation because none of us are able to keep it because of our sin nature. So God in His grace has has entered into a new covenant with us that was put into place and ratified by His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to show you this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, we're going to read this and and we're going to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 8, look what it says in verse 6. 
He's quoting here from, or in a moment he'll quote from Jeremiah, who was another prophet preaching during this time of exile. It says there in Hebrews 8 verse 6, but that, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In other words, you can experience salvation from this covenant. You couldn't for the old one because you couldn't do it. You couldn't keep it perfectly. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here's quoting Jeremiah, contemporary of Ezekiel, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They experienced my judgment. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. There's new heart, new spirit. They're going to be mine. They will be related to me. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. So this new covenant that we enter into when we believe in Jesus has two major aspects. Number one, forgiveness of your transgressions, because we've all failed when it comes to the law. Can I get an amen on that? We all need forgiveness. Number two, inner transformation. New heart, new spirit, law in our minds, writing them on their hearts. That is part of the new covenant. So if you want to be right with God, okay, if you want to be right with God and live, okay, as an individual, you turn to Jesus. You invite him into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior. Place your faith and trust in Christ who died for you and rose from the grave. And when that happens, and listen, when that happens, he gives you righteousness as a gift. His righteousness, the righteousness he earned when he lived on this earth. It says over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So if, if you have a relationship with God, he sees you as righteous. Jesus has given you his righteousness as a gift. That's called imputed righteousness. So you are righteous. Remember Ezekiel 18, righteous, unrighteous? You're righteous if you know Jesus. You've been forgiven, a right standing before God. But also, not only do you have imputed righteousness, you have imparted righteousness. God's changed you on the inside, so now you can begin to obey him and do the right thing. And bear fruit and show people that you really do have a relationship with God. He changed on the inside. See, a lot of people think salvation, I think I've shared this illustration before. A lot of people think salvation is like going through a car wash. You're dirty and you get washed off in the car wash. And, and that's true. You're forgiven of your sins. But also, it's like going through a car wash and while the dirt's being washed off the car, someone comes in and puts a brand new engine and brand new wiring in the car. So when it comes to the car wash, not only is it clean, but it's, it's totally transformed on the inside. That's what salvation is. Imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness, the new covenant of Jesus. So, we're accountable to God as individuals. We have to make a personal decision as to whether or not we will be rightly related to God and we're only rightly related to God through His Son, 
Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.